God speaks to us in his word in Mark 13, 14 through 31. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Katie. Good morning. It's good to see everyone. My name's Ben. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the lead pastor here and get to serve as one of the elders. And, um, and I just want to welcome all of our guests. You picked, a, um, you picked a great, well, I hope it's great, picked an interesting uh, Sunday to be here because we are a church that teaches through the Bible and we go verse by verse through the Bible. Maybe that's new to you. I don't know. But for us, what that means is teaching verse by verse through the Bible means that we don't get to skip over the hard and confusing ones. And this particular chapter in Mark is one of the hardest and uh, most confusing, most debated chapters in all of the Bible. Men much smarter than me, uh, more godly than me, have very differing opinions on what this means. This is Jesus now. Um, He has come out of the temple. He's gone up to the east side of the temple on a mountain called the Mount of Olives. And he's given them a teaching on the Mount of Olives, and it's known as the Olivet Discourse. Well, the Olivet Discourse is paralleled in Matthew and Luke, and it is debated. We started this chapter, this one chapter we're taking three weeks to cover. We started last week, and this is the second week in the Olivet Discourse. All right? So, welcome, guest, everybody. I'm glad you're here. This book is alive. It has a heartbeat. It has brain activity. There's blood pumping through this book. It's not a dead book. Everything in this book is profitable for you and for me. It's the breath of God. So we need this book today. We need even Mark 13. Weird language, weird words, Not normal for us. We need this chapter to breathe life into our bones. And it actually can. It actually can. So I'm going to ask you today to perk up, pay attention. The the old saying that like 
Um, not all teachers are preachers, but all preachers must be teachers at times. Well, that is definitely true today. This is a bit of a classroom sermon today. There's going to be a lot of stuff that I walk through. Any, all the type A people in the room, um, all the people who love taking notes are like, yes, finally. I'm finally going to enjoy a sermon in this church. Take notes. I'm going to have notes uh, up on the screen. I can give you my sermon notes after we're done here. I would love to do that. And also, let's be people that learn. One of my biggest fears in this church is that we become a Sunday-only church. And guess what? That's not a church at all. That's just a crowd. You have to follow Jesus at home. You have to read the Bible at home in order to be a Christian. So let's be people that do that. Let's devour this word, man. Let's, let's, let's do what uh, Paul tells Timothy. Let's rightly divide it. Let's rightly divide it. And we're going to try our best to do that today. I stand up here very humbly with a lot of fear and trembling to know that multiple theologians, the patristics, the apostolic fathers, multiple men in church history who are a lot smarter, were in a time with a lot less technology, have studied a lot more, all have differing opinions on this particular chapter. And I'm not gonna stand up here dogmatic. I'm not gonna talk to you about what I think is the absolute right way. I'm gonna give you what I feel is the interpretation of this chapter, and I think it really does matter for 2022. So we do need to pay attention, because it matters for today. We've walked through the book of Mark. It's the story of Jesus. Mark has been incredible for us. There's one thing that's been true. No matter how many times you've heard Mark, no matter how much you've studied it, if you have been with us through the thick of it, and you've walked with each chapter and each verse, there's a few things that are happening. One is our perception of Jesus has been challenged, and it's actually been proven wrong. That's the same thing that's happening in Mark. The disciples' perception of Jesus, even though they identified him finally as God, took eight chapters to get there, but finally they identified him as the Messiah. We do that. We say, yes, you're the Messiah. We're okay with that. Yes, Jesus is Lord. But then when it comes to the type of God that he is, the one who asks us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, we're not okay with God anymore. The disciples thought that Messiah was coming, and the primary reason he was coming was to overthrow the government that oppressed them. They had looked at all of these prophecies in the Old Testament that he would come and sit on the throne of David, he would build an everlasting kingdom, and they thought, okay, great, everlasting. You know what that means? Always lasting. And then when Jesus said, I am the Messiah, but I must be put to death, Peter rebuked him, and everybody, nobody, had, nobody could deal with that. What do you mean you must be put to death? You're supposed to overthrow the Romans. You're supposed to be military Messiah. You're supposed to establish Israel as the powerful nation in the world again. That's the point, right? And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm coming to defeat something much more important than just your governmental foes. I'm going to defeat Satan, sin, and death. And my everlasting kingdom will be that everlasting in a new heavens in a new earth. Last week was the start of us as we got to this Mark 13. What has happened now is Jesus has done all kinds of crazy things. He's displayed his power. He's calmed the storm. He has healed the sick. A lady touched his, a lady who'd been sick for years, could not get help, just touched his garment, healed. He rose a little girl from the dead. He's got power over death, over nature, over sickness, over disease. He's entered into this place called the temple. 
In the last week of his life, which is where we're at, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, he's on the way to the cross now. In his last week, he goes into the temple. The temple was massive. It was built by Solomon 580-something years before this time. Herod, who was a pagan, god, a pagan king, didn't worship God at all, didn't worship Yahweh. Herod was the king over the Jews at this time. Herod says, this temple is so important to the world. Even though I don't worship in it, I know how important it is for these people. I know how important it is for the world. He nearly tripled, but especially doubled the size of the temple that Solomon had built, which was already a massive temple. I'm going to talk a lot about the temple today. I want you to get to, you have to see, if you weren't with us last week, you have to see how crazy this thing was. He employed a thousand priests to help build, priests to help build the temple. I'm like, man, if he'd have done that today, I know some pastors, that probably wouldn't have gotten him very far. This thing was 12 football fields long. It enclosed 35 acres. 35 acres in a building. Giant walls, one stone they found. An archaeologist found one stone. Just one of the stones weighed a million pounds. It was massive. It was the place of identity and history, religious, spiritual, um, physical and national identity was this temple. It was known as one of the, the, the wonders of the ancient world. So imagine pyramids and Herod's temple. People said from miles from other countries, you saw it on the mountainside. It's called the Temple Mount. On the mountainside, you could see it the way that it was so ornate. It looked like when the sun hit, it looked like just a gold mountain. It was massive. It was in a 50-year renovation, finishing up the renovation of the temple in Jesus' Time. Jesus has gone into the temple. Now imagine this. God himself, the one that gave Solomon the instructions on what to build the temple several hundred years before, is now incarnate. He is a man. God himself, the glory of God, walks into the temple. And the first thing he does is he doesn't sit around. He doesn't go, man, this really worked out. My plan has come together. This is beautiful. The end. The first thing he does is in the court of all nations, the court of the Gentiles, he condemns the temple. Can you imagine? This guy is the Messiah. He's condemning the temple. He calls it a den of robbers. He says, you're taking advantage of the Gentiles, the ones who don't know me, which is why I came. You're taking advantage of them. It looks back to Jeremiah 7 when Jeremiah condemned the temple and he said, the temple in the Old Testament is a den of robbers. Jesus fulfills all the law and prophets. He calls it a den of robbers. That's his first condemnation of the temple. And then throughout the temple, all these religious leaders, the ones that were supposed to know God the most, missed him the most. They tried to trap him. They tried to condemn him. And Jesus, in turn, in his compassion, he preached the gospel to them. That's happened for at least a couple days at this point. The builder of the temple, the cornerstone of the temple, according to the New Testament, is now gonna become the cornerstone that the builders reject. And Jesus is the glory of God. He's now, we learned this last week, he has left the temple, and it's more than just him physically walking out. It's a prophetic exit. Ezekiel 11 says, the glory of God left the city 
and went up on the east side mountain. Jesus, the glory of God incarnate, has left the temple, the heart of Jerusalem, and now he's up on the east side of the mountain. He's teaching them about the temple. The disciples ask him a question. First, they point out the temple's beautiful. Jesus says to them, he blows their mind. He says, not one stone will be left from this temple. Twelve football fields and 35 acres. Jesus says, not a single stone will be left. Can you imagine the anger? The confusion? And then the disciples ask him a question, and that's how we get this chapter. The disciples ask him, when is the temple going to be destroyed, and how will we know it's about to happen? And now Jesus is answering this question with this whole chapter. It's one of his longest speeches in the gospel. A lot of godly men, well, I'm not going to sit here today and condemn anyone else's thoughts, or you might have different thoughts than me, I don't know. I'm going to preach what I see and what we've agreed on as elders. A lot of people read this chapter and they get a lot of their eschatology from it. Eschatology, you remember that word, it simply means this. It's derived from two Greek words, eschaton, which means last or final, and logos, which means word or discourse. Eschatology is simply the study of last things. I don't think that Mark 13 is about last things. I think Jesus is being a good shepherd. I think he's being a friend closer than a brother and he's giving them warning about something that is gonna happen that they never would have thought would have happened in the history of the world. The temple is gonna be destroyed and therefore their livelihood, the sacrificial system, the temple worship, all of that. Jesus is establishing himself as the true, the new, and the better temple. Now there's no holy of holies to go into. You remember when he died, Jesus, the veil was torn. Jesus himself becomes the presence of God. There are four things, though, that we've got to know. Orthodox Christians, that means Christians who follow biblical theology and understanding. There are four things that we have to remember that all Orthodox Christians believe about eschatology or last things. One, Jesus will come again. It's fact. He will come again. Two, there will be a new heavens and new earth. He will establish his kingdom on earth fully. New heavens, new earth, no more sin, no more pain, and no more death. It will all be destroyed finally. Satan along with it. Fourth, there will be a resurrection of the dead. That's what all Orthodox Christians believe about last things. Jesus is answering a question from the disciples as he exits the temple. Jesus tells them what to expect during the days leading up to the temple's destruction and how to respond. The Roman armies would finally capture all of Jerusalem and they would, the Roman armies had this, this thing, it's hard to describe, but it was like a frenzy, almost like a feeding frenzy. When they were about to conquer a structure or a place, they would go mad. They would go insane. Soldiers would get crazy, foaming at the mouth. They would actually get so crazy pillaging all the things that they've conquered that they would sometimes trample over each other and kill each other. Kill each other. That's a frenzy. No general, no Caesar, no anybody could stop them. And what's happened now is in 70 AD, what's gonna happen, Jesus is telling them, 
is the Roman army is going to come in and there's going to be great tribulation in that day. They're going to frenzy. They're going to go and they're going to destroy this beautiful structure even though Titus, the, the emperor, the ruler, even though Titus says, don't do it. They're not going to listen because they're crazy. They're going to destroy the temple in 70 AD and Jesus tells them what's going to lead up to that will be false messiahs, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famine, persecution, and he says the gospel must be proclaimed to your neighbors. That's the first 13 verses. We're in the second half at this point. We learned something really important. Our reality is not the same as first century Christians who lived between 33 and 70 AD. Jesus rose from the dead in 33 AD. 70 AD is when the temple was destroyed. We don't have the same landscape. We don't live the same lives, but there is something that is so crucial for you to hear. Even though we don't live the same life, it's still the same truth for us. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look, this is gonna be the worst thing that we've seen in the history of the world. He tells them that. But even though there's gonna be pain, suffering, and peril, God the Holy Spirit is with you. That's true for you. Who walked in here with pain? Who walked in here with suffering? We look around the world and it's like, man, there's so much pain and tribulation. God, the Holy Spirit, is with us. And now today we have more work to do. Jesus is gonna change his tone a bit at verse 14. And he's gonna give them very specific details about what they can expect and when to expect it for the destruction of the temple and the persecution that will ensue after that happens. Let's continue on in Mark 13. Any note takers, take notes. We'll have notes and scripture on, this, on the screen. The first thing that we've got to see is the worst thing that could happen is the worst thing that will happen to them. Mark 13, 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, one pastor said, this is the best punk rock band name of all time. The abomination of desolation, when you see it standing where he ought not to be, what an interesting phrase, let the reader understand. What does that mean? Well, first off, the abomination of desolation literally means the abomination that causes desolation. It comes from the Old Testament. The word abomination is an object of disgust and revulsion, an idolatrous offense or affront to the worship of God. The most disgusting, revulsive thing. When you see that happening in your mind, first century Jewish men, Christians, in your mind, imagine what could possibly, what is the most revulsive thing, the most threatening thing to your identity? What tears down all of your building blocks of your framework of how to live and follow God and be people? When you see that happening, the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. That's your sign. Let the reader understand means literally and simply and only this. Let the reader of the Old Testament book of Daniel understand. That's what it means. Let the reader of Daniel understand. Daniel's the first place that we saw this terminology, the abomination of desolation. 
A ruler came into the temple in 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes. He did the most unthinkable thing imaginable. In 168 BC, he goes into that sacrificial chamber, into that place that only one priest one time a year was allowed to go and offer an atoning sacrifice for God's people. This was the most sacred place, that holy of holies, that room there, the sacrificial chamber. He, a man who does not know God and worships other false gods, he walks into that sacred place. He does the most unthinkable thing imaginable, and he sacrifices a pig to Zeus. Desecration. An abomination. Can you imagine a national rage? How could God let this happen? How could we let it happen? It's all torn down. To the Jewish people, nothing could have been worse, more disgusting or vile. This temple and its altar were the most sacred place in the universe, and the same were true for the people in Jesus' day for the Jewish people. The temple and its altar were the most sacred things in the universe. They, there's no way they could be torn down. Look at how big this is. Look at how even just physically, I mean, common sense would tell you the temple can't be destroyed, but that something out of Daniel, what happened in Daniel, are you kidding me, Jesus? That's gonna happen again? When you see the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand. When you see that happening, that is your sign. It's time to flee. Get out. He's going to later talk about, in a minute, how you don't even have time to think about where you're going. Flee to the mountains. You don't have time to get off on the rooftop. You don't have time to go into your house. You don't have time to, if you miss, Jesus says, if you leave your coat, leave your coat. Lose it. You don't have time to turn around and go grab it. Get out of here. It's that serious. Sam Storms has been so helpful. He's the guy that's going to be teaching our Night of Eschatology on March 23rd, he says it this way, the most likely identification in this time is Titus and the armies of Rome. While the city of Jerusalem was still burning, this is 70 AD, the soldiers brought their legionary standards into the temple precincts and offered sacrifices there, declaring Titus to be the victor. The idolatrous representations of Caesar and the Roman eagle on the standards would have constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. Abomination. What Jesus is telling them, the events that will unfold after that happens will be so fast, so quick, so terrible. You cannot imagine. You don't have time to even think about where you're going. Get to the mountains. Mark 13, 15. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down. This is Jesus talking nor enter his house. You, you could be on the roof of your house and you don't have time to go in your house. Jump off the roof, get to the mountains to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in the winter. This is a very serious, very concerned very good friend in Jesus. He's telling them this is gonna be terrible. I'm telling you exactly how it's gonna go down. Let the reader understand. When it happens, it's time to go. 
The second thing that I want you to look at is the great tribulation. Jesus again, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. Man, that is crazy. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. In the history of humanity, the gospel always gets twisted when it doesn't match people's idea of comfort. False messiahs lead people astray when they tell them things and they tickle their ears and they tell them following Jesus is only and purely about you having your best life. It's not. Following Jesus means pain. It means inevitable suffering. It is not easy. It's not complex. But it's not easy. It means denying yourself and laying down your rights. And look, I know the stuff I'm telling you right now doesn't build a big crowd. But it builds a church. There's always going to be false messiahs that say, it's going to end. It happened in Jeremiah. There were false prophets that said, we're not going to be in exile that long. We're going to go back. It's going to be fine. That's what happened in this time. False messiahs saying, I, have, I am the way. I have the way. Listen to me. It's going to end. Jesus is saying, I'm Jesus. I am the one way. And I'm telling you, as God, this is going to be bad. Endure. Endure. Don't listen to false messiahs. He talks about a great tribulation. He talks about tribulation. When I say the words great tribulation to you, if I were to ask you, what is that? Please don't answer out loud. What's the first thing that comes to mind? I don't know what the first thing that comes to your mind, but we all have heard that in our subconscious at least. We were trained in the Bible Belt to think of the terminology, the great tribulation, a certain way. That train of thought comes primarily, and in some cases only, from the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus answering a question about something that's going to happen to them in their generation. It's interesting to think about. What is fact is that there will be many tribulations, and there have been many tribulations. It's not like wars and rumors of wars only happen at a certain time period. We are right now looking at Ukraine, looking at Russia, and not even, even if that didn't ha wasn't happening right now, the fact is there are always wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, persecution. That is part of the fall. The great tribulation that Jesus is describing is a tribulation that he says is unlike anything that has happened in the past or anything that will happen. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so bad that God the Father will shorten the days. Notice something here that's so important. Jesus says, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been seen. Again, Jesus is in context describing to first century Jewish disciples about the coming destruction of the sacred temple in 70 AD, he is doing what he does. He uses their context and their language. And to put it plainly, 
He's being a good friend and good shepherd. However, again, Jesus' prophecy does not discount future tribulations, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't have implications for the inevitable second coming. Will there be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and all of that leading up to and surrounding that moment? Yes. You know why? Because the world is broken. That's why. We live in a broken world. The byproduct of human sin, evil, violence, war, famine, disasters, and death. It will happen until Jesus returns again and again and again. It's inevitable. Also, these events leading up to and during the fall of the temple of 70 AD were in fact as terrible as Jesus describes in this chapter. The problem is, is that we're just not great historians. And my goodness, have I learned a lot getting ready for these sermons. Josephus is a man that was a Jewish military leader in this time. He was captured by the Romans and he gained favor with one of the Roman captains. Well, that captain became emperor, and when he became emperor, he granted him some sort of clemency, but he was a bondservant of this emperor. And his job, to put it simply, was to document all that he saw. So this is a really rare thing. Josephus documented in intense, specific detail in a 200-page account called The War of the Jews he documented all that happened in 70 AD, which is a pretty big gift for us today. Here's his summary. We talk about great tribulation. Here's what Jesus was pointed to. Josephus' summary. Violent factions within the city during the siege committed atrocities. Again, he's writing on behalf of the Romans, just documenting. Bands of thieves and murderers took advantage of the chaos. In one event, zealots tortured and killed 12,000 of the city of Jerusalem's nobles. 12,000 nobles. Food supplies were burned and water sources polluted. Starving people sold children. And some resorted to cannibalism. People were eating leather, animal dung, and trash from open sewers. Rome crucified close to 500 people per day outside the wall. Everyone was either killed or sold into slavery. Realistic estimates are that 100,000 were enslaved and 1.1 million people were killed. That's not just tribulation. That's great tribulation. Jesus is also using Old Testament language here to describe the events that will unfold. And he says it this way, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. The language used here would have let the disciples know something. It would have let them know that what they're about to happen was on par with all of the crazy things that happen, all of the life-changing, earth-changing, nation of Israel-changing things that happened in the Old Testament. Jesus is getting them to see. This is Old Testament-type stuff. Here's some examples. Exodus 11. There shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. Joel 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again 
after it to the years of many generations. In Ezekiel 5, it's a reference to the impending Babylonian captivity. And because of all your abominations, I will do anything, I will do, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. This is language. Daniel 9. Thus, he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole of heaven there has not been anything done like it, like what was done to Jerusalem. He fulfills all the law and prophets. He lets them know practically how bad it's going to be. And he identifies with their senses and says, this is going to be like that. The third thing, the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Mark 13, 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and, when they will, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this is so important, listen to this verse. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I can't say it enough, the New Testament is 100% clear Jesus will come again. He will restore the new heavens and new earth. He will come in power and glory. He will have a face that shines brighter than the sun. He'll be carrying a sword. He will destroy our enemy for good. I cannot say that enough. That is the truth of scripture. However, although some believe verse 26, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, although some believe that is primarily and only about Jesus' second coming. That's godly men, smart men. Some believe that. I think there are several compelling reasons as to why it's not about that at all. So let's remember a few things as we approach our last section of this sermon. One, context matters so much. Who was it written to? Who was it said to? What were they pointing to? Two, Jesus is fulfilling all the law and prophets. Old Testament language is used and fulfilled. Three, Jesus is the new and better temple. Verse 30 is so important. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Dr. Storm says this, this Greek word, generation, is used 20, 27 times in the Gospels and never once means race. Every time the words this generation occur in the Gospels, they mean Jesus' contemporaries or the sum total of those living at the same time that he did. There's been some talk or some debate about whether or not the, this word generation means simply the Jewish race. It means Jesus' contemporaries. Let's walk through these. We've got context, Jesus fulfilling the law and prophets, and the new and better temple. First, context. Everything up to this point is a direct answer, remember, to a direct question about the temple being destroyed. There is nothing to indicate Jesus is expecting what is now at least a 2,000 year gap 
between his first prophecy then and its fulfillment. Second, Jesus is fulfilling all the law and prophets. Old Testament language is used and fulfilled. Look at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and, when they will see, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. What happens when we divorce Jesus or the New Testament from the Old Testament, what happens is we start to forget exactly how God has always spoken. And then we take this in a hyper-literal way. These are literal words from the literal Son of God. But it's also used multiple times in the Old Testament. We read this and we go, well, I guess the sun's going to not shine. And I guess the moon won't either. And stars are going to literally fall? How are we going to survive that? And the powers will be shaken. He's using the language of the Old Testament to describe God's sovereign work in history. Isaiah 13, 9 through 10, describes the judgment of God on Babylon. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Ezekiel describes the destruction of Egypt. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate, and when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. Testament fulfillment. And third, Jesus is the new and better temple. Verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. These aren't words about Jesus descending from heaven. Coming is ascending. These are words about Jesus finally fulfilling his destiny. He has now lived a perfect life, died and resurrected, and he is ascending to the Father to take his rightful place at his right hand. It is a fulfillment of Daniel 7. Let me read what Daniel 7 says to us. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. This is what Jesus called himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's Father God, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. R.T. France says it this way, Jesus is using Daniel 7.13 as a prediction of that authority which he exercised when in AD 70 the Jewish nation and its leaders who had condemned him were overthrown and Jesus was vindicated as the recipient of all power from the ancient of days. Jesus, exalted after his death and resurrection to receive his everlasting dominion, will display it within this generation. By an act of judgment on the nation and, and capital of the authorities who presume to judge him, then they will see for themselves that their time of power is finished, and it is to him that God has given all power in heaven and earth. He has the name above every name. There is a new temple. There is a new holy of holies. Jesus is the one that sits at the right hand of God. 
He's ascending as the final authority over the temple that would be physically, literally realized in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Here's the thing. We love the concept of Jesus as our friend, a nice person, one who is only ever loving, but according to our definition of love, which means tolerates whatever we want to do any given day. We love the concept of Jesus as friend and homie. <laughs> but it's so hard for our mind and heart to understand Jesus as righteous judge. The one who, in order to ascend to the throne, the one who, in order to enact his true and better temple, needed to destroy the temple. Jesus, in his power, stands over judgment over the old sacrificial system, over its ways, over its priests. He is the chief priest himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? The temple had to be destroyed. Along with it, their idolatry to the temple. Along with it, the sacrificial system. Along with it, their national identity. And it's the same for us today. Jesus is the temple that destroys temples. You understand what I'm saying? The temples that we make, we don't have a structure like they have, but it's the same thing. The temples that you and I make, the temple that you make and that I make to money. How it controls us, how we worship the holy of holies, that altar there is our paycheck. And we make all kinds of sacrifices to get money. The temples that we build to our to our husband or wife, when their opinion is ultimate and their mood is ultimate and the way they see you is the ultimate thing and it, if they don't see you or treat you or act perfectly right the way that you think they should, then it shakes the core of your faith. We make temples, sex becomes a temple. It's the only thing that we think about. It's the primary means of relationship for a lot of people in the room, for the whole world. Things that were meant to be sacrificial in their worship to God, money, sex, relationship, marriage, those things become the holy of holies in our heart and we worship there as opposed to worshiping Jesus. Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. He is jealous. He will not settle for us worshiping in other temples. He is the temple that destroys temples. Do you understand what I'm saying? He doesn't just want a piece of you. He wants every single bit of you. Mark 8 says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. We followed in the footsteps of our ancestors. We have, you and I. Adam is where it started, Adam and Eve, the temple of their own self-authority. 
We followed in their footsteps. We worship in other temples. We make sacrifices in those temples. It's the ultimate abomination of desolation. It wasn't just for Jewish people in history or for their rulers. It wasn't just for Antiochus Epiphanes or Titus, the Roman ruler. It was for me and you as well. Things that were meant for holiness, we've taken them in vain, built altars to them instead of committing them to worship. This matters for us today. Do you understand? He has all authority on heaven and earth. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. No temple stands. None. Jesus is the new and better temple, all authority. Here's the best news. On our best day and our best behavior, we can never worship Jesus perfectly. We can never stop. You ever think about that? Like, why can't I just stop sinning or making sacrifice or whatever? Why can't I stop? Jesus' ultimate reason that he came was to become the new and better temple, but also the chief priest. Hebrews says he's a sufficient high priest. He's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And Jesus himself, in the ultimate abomination of desolation, Jesus himself becomes desolate on the cross. In the abomination of the Son of God, he who knew no sin became sin. You see what I'm saying? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We don't stand a chance in this world without Jesus. He lived perfectly. He died a brutal death, murdered in front of everyone. He's been through every type of abuse, every type of betrayal. He can identify with every type of weakness. He himself bore our iniquity. He who knew no sin became sin. That is the ultimate abomination. He was deserted. Do you understand? His friends, sin, made, put, on, put on him something that he had never felt before in his life. He did that because he knew there was no way for us to worship God perfectly. There was no way for us to even be with God without God himself coming in Jesus. So there's an invitation for you today. For the Christian in the room, it's this. Where are you worshiping? Where are you worshiping? What temples have you made? Jesus is the temple that destroys temples. Lay those down. Every aspect of your life, worship Jesus. And maybe you're not a Christian in the room. There could be several in here. In a in this part of the world, there's a lot of people that have been to church a lot but don't follow Jesus. It's the over-churched and under-gospeled crowd. And men, thank you for being here. But I wanna invite you, without shame, maybe you're thinking like, man, I've been to church, I've heard a lot, but God's doing something. I don't know if I've actually ever worshiped Jesus before. I wanna invite you to lay down your life, follow him. And maybe church is brand spanking new and all this is crazy to you, but you know God's telling you something, you, you wanna trust and believe it. Come, give your life to Jesus. I'm, I'd love to talk with you today.
for all the Christians in the room that follow Jesus, for all of us that have made idols of worship and other temples in our life, as we come and take communion, which we do this every single week, the reason why we do it every single week is one, Jesus told us to do it often, and when we do, remember. And the fact is, is that we need it every single week because our memories are that bad. <laughs> so come, with your bad memory, with your broken memory, come remember God's goodness today. Resubmit your life to him in the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's stand together. If you're serving the table, please come down.